0: The Royal Commission has defined it or portrayed it really as you've got an older person who is living in aged care. What are their rights? So immediately you have reduced the context, the size of the world in which they're living. Whereas if you said, here is someone who's a member of society, has the right to liberty of movement, the right to go out to concerts, the right to go and visit relatives, and and so on, that immediately puts a much bigger frame there in terms of things like wealth. Is it justifiable to restrict people in going out? How do do we facilitate that continuing engagement with the community as opposed to ensuring that the site of residence is really the source of all the opportunities and all the support that the person needs, which I think is a bit of a temptation at times.
1: Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Ashton And something that we've been hearing a lot about recently is human rights, specifically that despite our best intentions, the way in which we deliver care for older adults can result in infringements on their human rights. Well, I guess today is at the forefront of the push for the recognition of the rights of older people, both in Australia and to the United Nations on the international stage. Emeritus Professor Andrew Burns from the University of New South Wales joins us to talk about the importance of human rights, why we need a specific international treaty on the rights of older adults, and how it will positively impact carers and care recipients around the world. Andrew is a great presenter, and he really helps to interpret this at times complex legal topic into real terms for people who are working in the industry, particularly with his references to the findings of last year's Royal Commission. It's a thought-provoking episode and one that I hope you enjoy with Emeritus Professor Andrew Burns. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the program.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you.
1: And uh, I imagine people listening may not know about you and your work and particularly the stuff you're doing on the international level. Could you give us a bit of an overview of of your expertise?
0: I'm an Emeritus Professor in the Faculty of Law and Justice at the University of New South Wales. And sort of my academic career has largely been as an international lawyer an international human rights lawyer a general one but also around various issues relating to particular groups so discrimination against women disability issues and more recently aging issues and the rights of older persons and i've been fortunate enough to work with a number of groups internationally including various configurations of national human rights institutions like the Australian human rights commission On the regional, that is Asia-Pacific and international level, in working on the drafting of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and over the last few years in the discussions going on at the UN about the need for a new international treaty on the human rights of older persons. I'm also engaged in some domestic advocacy around those issues through my academic position and the work I'm doing with the Australian Human Rights Institute at University of New South Wales.
1: Yeah, that's great. So, three kind of levels there, an academic level, a national level, and also an international level. A lot of our listeners will have heard, particularly Daniela Greenwood, who's on the show regularly, talking about human rights and and why this is a lens through which we need to view older adults and the way we deliver care. But maybe just stripping it back a little bit here, what role do human rights play and and why are they relevant here to older adults?
0: Well, I think that can be answered at two levels. One, why are human rights important generally Mm -hmm. and why they are particular importance in relation to older persons. Human rights, when we think about them, you know, the right to life, the right to education, the right to family and private life, right to equality and non-discrimination. I mean, they're fundamental values to which we subscribe in our community. They're statements of entitlements, values, aspirations. But they also provide, importantly, policies, uh, frameworks for policy making. They also provide a way of communities getting involved in decision-making, whether it affects them, so leads to transparency and accountability of the state and other powerful actors. So that's, I think, at a general term. In, in more classic legal terms, human rights treaties to which Australia or other countries become parties, is the technical term, they sign on, they, they agree to abide by them, give rise to international legal obligations, and that can have a big impact on their behaviour at the national level. And of course, human rights treaties and standards are incorporated in different ways into our national laws, policy, and and practice, though often uh, imperfectly. And making a, a human rights claim, it's a claim to an entitlement. It's not going to government and begging and as a supplicant to say, please exercise your discretion to give me a charitable handout so that I will have enough to live on. Mm. A human rights claim, a right to an adequate standard of living, a right to ad- a social security, therefore more powerful, and that in some ways is why governments are reluctant to have them enshrined in those terms in, in legislation. Now why older persons? why when we've got these these current treaties, what, why are we worrying about the need for a one for a treaty that focuses particularly on older persons? human rights do apply to everyone however sometimes particular groups suffer from marginalization or particular forms of discrimination that others don't we've seen in the area of race and ethnicity indigeneity women people with disability and we've increasingly become aware that that the same is a case on a systemic level for older persons hmm. however you define them and that's that's a, a debate and The findings and recent work done by the United Nations, studies by the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights, have found that within the current system of protection of human rights, which is meant to be universal, applying to everyone, in fact, older persons' issues and older persons are largely or relatively invisible, uh, and therefore they get left out of the process. And they've also found that the existing treaties have been formulated without a real understanding of the nature of ageing, in modern society, which has really changed. We're living longer. There are going to be more of us as we get older. Expectations about what happens when one hits one's so-called traditional retirement age are changing. So all those things having implications on the lives of older persons and indeed the lives of younger persons, both now and when they become older persons, and the human rights system, the human rights framework hasn't really shifted to accommodate those changes, and, and the argument is that it needs to.
1: Mm. No, that, that's great. Thank you for explaining it. I know there's so much, so many little nuances there, but that gives us a really broad overview. It sounds like human rights can be looked at as a reference point for what is acceptable standards of living and standards of, of treatment from other actors, whether governments or organisations, and they're important in the case of vulnerable groups, such as older adults, where, you know, the traditional implicit rights may not be as closely applied. Is, is that right to say that?
0: Yes, I think that's a, that's a good summary of the main points.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering there, can we be specific here and, and just give a few examples to get our listeners thinking about the sorts of things that should be enshrined in law and aren't being uh, upheld for older persons?
0: I'm not sure that I'd say that they're not being upheld to in the way that the rights of other groups are because I think we I think we have to accept that many other groups in society do not fully enjoy their, their human rights. And I think it's very important we don't get into a sort of competition yeah. uh, about it, although I think that the COVID pandemic has really underlined the particular violations and the severity in relation to the older sections of our, our community. There are a number of things, and I think the the, the the real unifying feature of them is the the notion of ageism and the practice of ageism. That is a notion which deprecates, which devalues, which uses stereotypes uh, and prejudices in relation to particular groups in our community because of their older age or their assumed older age and the qualities that are often uh, assumed to go with it. You know, the the dear but doddery Mm. approach, the fact that um, people are assumed not to want to learn new things uh, as they get older or are incapable of doing it or can't manage technology or, you know aren't reliable employees, all those sorts of stereotypes about older persons which are stereotypes and so don't allow for the assessment of individuals uh, on their own uh, actual merits, something we demand I think at all stages of life. Ageism of course applies to some in some ways to younger people as well. They can be the victims of ageism, but it's I think of a, of a, a systemic and, a, and widespread nature and a seriousness for older cohorts that, that make it into its own form of violation. So we have it all throughout a society, and we we internalise it. <laughs> Go into a, a news agent and look for birthday cards about age, all the all the self deprecatory internalised ages, things about people getting old, mm. and so on to comments about, oh, you look young for your age, uh, which gives all sorts of messages and is built on all sorts of assumption about the ageing process, which is different for all of us. So it's there; it influences uh, a lot of what we do. Often it's benevolent. But we know that ageism has a really severe impact on people's health as well as on people's quality of life. So that's, I think, the overarching issue. And our laws, our policies don't really address that explicitly. There's some coverage, but that would, I think, be a central feature of any new international human rights framework, the obligation to identify and address ageism. Because after all, a number of other conventions, so the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination, uh, All Forms of Racial Discrimination, requires us to address racism. Mm. Convention on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women requires us to address sexism. Convention on the Rights of Disabilities requires us to address ableism. So it's it's in that line of identifying a problem requiring cultural change, self-awareness, and a convention would provide the framework for us to get on with doing that in a way that hasn't been done comprehensively thus far. But I think people are are struggling to say, particularly where you have people with dementia, how do we set up a system which respects their right, which starts from their right as an individual with autonomy and independence who's able to make choices about how, how they run their daily life and how they make the big decisions about their lives. What we have now isn't doing the job the question is, you know, how do we get there? And I suppose the thing about a human rights approach is that it gives us a, a different roadmap. It it helps us to ask different questions and make different adjustments and compromises than it would if we go in with, with what we've got, which is broadly a health delivery approach with general support and so on. it's not, despite... Some things like the aged care charter of rights it doesn't seem to translate into practice into a true human rights approach. Now that's difficult. That's in, can be incredibly difficult. But these are us. They're our family. They're our friends. They uh, they will be us potentially. You know these are critical issues about how our society supports members of our community in living their lives. Something which everyone considers to be important. Mm. But when it gets to aged care, the import the importance of that, or at least its implementation, seems to get eroded much more than many of us would like to see.
1: Mm. You've mentioned here this Convention on the Rights of Older Persons, an international agreement here, which is something that you're working on. And you released a, a paper in 2020, which is an unrepentant call for a more complete application of human rights. Maybe you can give us a bit of an explanation for why we need an international agreement here?
0: Perhaps I can first pick up that paper that you've referred to because it illustrates the help that an international framework, a comprehensive framework of the sort that's being proposed can help. In, the, in that paper, I was analysing the interim report of the Royal Commission into Aged Care, Quality and Safety. And I, I picked on one particular example in the Commission's report. And that was the case of younger people who were living in residential aged care because there were no other forms of residential care that were available to them that were more suitable for younger people. Mm. And the commission said, this is a human rights violation. This is a human rights issue. And it used the provisions of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, Article 19, which talks about the right to live independently and in the community, so to choose where you live, whom you live with, and so on, and said there's a violation here. Now... This, in that interim report, was the only part which had a heading human rights issue, and yet the commission had spent hundreds of pages detailing what it clearly viewed as human rights issues but didn't designate them as such. And interestingly, when it came to older persons living in congregate institutional settings, it didn't ask the question of whether the right to live independently and in the community applies to them and how it applies and how it might shape our understanding of what is appropriate for aged care. So throughout that, and in fact in its final recommendations, if it had had a convention, an international framework, it would have helped it, would have provided a touchstone uh, for the sorts of recommendations and analysis it was doing. And you can see that with the other Royal Commission currently going on at the moment, the Royal Commission uh, into Violence, exploitation and abuse against people with disability, which is framed around the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. That runs through everything that it's doing in terms of analysis and really focuses what it's doing in rights terms. If we get a new convention, and it's a long way off, I think, although there's been some recent positive progress, we will get something, I think, like the Disability Convention. That is, it will be a clear statement of what general human rights mean for Various situations that older persons face. And of course, older persons are diverse, and the situations and discrimination that they face can vary depending on their sex, gender, sexual orientation, indigeneity, and so on. So it's not, there's not one older person. Hmm. And that's why it's important to be a little more, little more fine grained and nuanced. Uh, and that is what a convention will allow, enable us to do. If it is adopted and if it is, ratified by Australia, it will generate the need to look at our existing legislation and change things. It will, I'm sure, generate the need in the longer term to look at our aged care system even more closely than we've looked at it to date. We'll need to look at labour market policies. We'll need to look at the exclusion of people over 65 from the NDIS, uh, which is a, a contentious issue involving differential treatment on the basis of older age. It will require us to address issues around intergenerational relationships, equity, justice, all those things. In a a way, it will involve a a cultural change, a cultural shift around how we view ageing and how we understand the process of ageing.
1: Mm. To to push back a little bit here, when you look at Australia's engagement with its other international commitments, such as the rights of refugees or... You know, environmental obligations, we don't have a great track record of, of taking that to heart and acting on those. What's to say that having an international agreement will translate into action
0: in Australia? Look, it's certainly true that international agreements are not always or perhaps even often are not 100% implemented as, as we would like them. But that's not to say that they don't have an impact. And just from the human rights perspective, uh, if you look at something like the Racial Discrimination Act, which is our overarching protection, that comes from and is based on politically and constitutionally the International Convention on the Eliminations of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Okay. The Similarly with the, the CEDAW, the Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, we have a Sex Discrimination Act which draws on that and helps to implement that. Disability Convention is the same. So, yes... A convention doesn't implement itself. it is It provides a focal point for policymaking, for advocacy, for contestation around these issues. And it's true in some areas. Australia has fallen well short of what a fair-minded observer would see as an appropriate implementation of its treaty obligations. Refugees is one area and there are others. But I think that overall that you end up with positives in a country like Australia, with, which has a broadly liberal democratic approach to these things. And I think the track record shows that in this area as in other areas, it would be a net plus mm. to the enjoyment of, of human rights of older persons, but also that is for the benefit of the broader community as, as well. Hey, did you know we launched a new show this season? Hello, I'm here with Daniela Greenwood. And I'm
1: here with Maury Voicey Barlan. That's right, Daniela and Maury are back, and they're joining us every Friday for their new show, Who Cares? Where they'll be taking a quizzical look at some of aged care's challenges and exploring what they mean for all of us working in the industry.
0: I'm really stumped by how what the resolution is here because I think there's a lot to dig into. You would have been better working at McDonald's, Murray, because I they've got a good set. I could have been somebody, <laughs> Daniela. I could have been somebody. You are a somebody, Murray. You, and The more I learn about you, you're an amazing oh, somebody. Oh,
1: thank you. I think the same. It's a double dose of podcast fun each week, and you can find it right here in the ACE feed every Friday.
0: You're going to be the new Minister of Aging if it's the last thing I do.
1: What can we expect that this might lead to, that an international convention might lead to?
0: The changes that an international convention will bring are are a little bit down the track, although the very process of talking about it and drafting it can actually generate change before it ever comes into, into being. So we may see some of that. In the immediate future, we may get a bit of an inkling of that in some of the Uh, advocacy around the response to the Royal Commission's uh, report. The Royal Commission has made a centrepiece of its response, the the need to develop a rights-based new aged care framework, uh, by which I assume they made a human rights-based framework, although the way in which they articulated in their report it's not a fulsome human rights, uh, rights approach. Mm. But anyway, I, I think that when we get that that new Aged Care Act, we need really to be thinking about what a human rights approach means. This is in some ways going to be a, a test run for that. And it's not just, as is emphasised by the Royal Commission, primarily organised about around healthcare delivery and quality of, of services. It needs to be much more than that the Royal Commission has defined it or portrayed it really as you've got an older person who is living in aged care. What are their rights? Hmm. So immediately you have reduced the context, the size of the world in which they're living. Whereas if you said, here is someone who's a member of society, has the right to liberty of movement, the right to go out to concerts, the right to do this, the right to go and visit relatives and, and, and so on, that immediately puts a much bigger frame there in terms of things like, well, is it justifiable to restrict people in going out? How do do we facilitate that continuing engagement with the community, as opposed to ensuring that the site of residence is really the source of all the opportunities and all the support that the person needs, which I think is a bit of a temptation at Mm. times. Now, I'm aware that, that one needs to be fair to the current system, the current providers, current workers, and so on. It's difficult, and many of the services that provided are excellent. The commitment of providers and of others is terrific. I've seen it in my my own uh, personal uh, experience, but they're working within a challenging system, so I think it's important to put that on, on the record. We also need to think about not just the human rights of the older resident, but pandemic has shown particularly the need to talk about the human rights of the workforce. Mm. What we've seen in the workforce has had consequences not just for the workers themselves in aged care, but for the residents and for the running of that system. And they are human rights issues. The right to just and favourable conditions of work, the right to a, a job that is not precarious, and overly casualized, the right to a job that will actually provide a living wage for you and, and your family, all those things are human rights issues. They're also part of, part of improving the situation uh, if we're going to stick with uh, and try to improve the existing uh, system. In fact, they'll be part of any future solution if we need support workers in any, in any context. But the big question, I suppose, is, as we have done in relation to persons with disabilities, how do we think about deinstitutionalization in the context of aged care. And that's a radical question because our aged care system, a large part of it, not all of it, of course, because you have the at-home care, a large part of it is, is premised on quite a significant institutionalized provision mm. of aged care. And that's a hard question. We have to ask the question. I'm not sure what the answers are, but we really need to be asking that question and identifying that it's some of those structural constraints which restrict the extent to which we can ensure people enjoy their human rights.
1: Yeah. So much to kind of unpack. And and it's really nice to just say, yeah, we need to think about this. We need to talk about this. We don't necessarily have the answers yet, but at least having the conversations and working in that direction, we're going to arrive at something else.
0: Look, I mean, the other issue is, of course, the whole debate is in so many ways dominated by a number of players who are either providers or um, like OPAN or others trying to, to provide advocacy and support services to to older people. So the focus of the engagement is all about how do we fix the existing system? And so it's really hard to step back and outside that and still be considered to be relevant uh, in any way to to policy. Mm. It's a continuing challenge. How do we think beyond our existing limitations and the, the models that we have in our heads? And come up with something better.
1: Mm, and do we want to?
0: And do we want to? Uh, well, I, I, I hope that we want to. And that raises, I suppose, another issue that is really important in these discussions. That was addressed to some extent in the Royal Commission, but it's another case of nothing about us without us. Mm. And older persons' voices and views need to be heard. They need to be heard firsthand and not necessarily interpreted by others. Uh, although sometimes there may need to be communication by others. That is, of course, a, a challenge because these things take time, they take additional effort, particularly where you have people who, who may not be able to communicate through speech or as easily as other people can. Mm.
1: Given the weight that's going into it and the reluctance of governments like Australia to to put themselves behind it at the moment, do you think it's fair to say that the implementation of a convention Would lead to massive industry reforms and a
0: need to restructure the way in which aged care is delivered in Australia. Potentially, I think one has to recognise that a convention is a medium to long term thing. So, even if it gets adopted within five years from now, which would be reasonably not so slow by UN standards, it would then take a number of years to get ratified, and then the the process of implementing it, you know. It's a gradual process and it's a dynamic process that continues over years. But it seems to me almost inevitable that. If a convention is really going to embrace the values of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and what older people's advocates are saying, it will need us to rethink some fundamental dimensions of our aged care system if it remains much the same as it is now, And of course. It's in the process of change, although whether that's incremental change or fundamental human rights influence change is, a, is another question.
1: Mm. Well, something that Daniela has said a few times is that we can't make any sort of meaningful change without looking at this stuff, that everything else is just window dressing on, on a bigger problem. Do you think that's fair to say? Uh, uh,
0: yes. Uh, the Royal Commission itself described the current Aged Care Act and system as as, as looking like, and in fact being, a system of allocation of resources provided by the Commonwealth Government for the provision of particular services with a particular focus on the delivery of of health services. And that frames a whole range of dimensions of the aged care system. And that, I think, has been partly the reason why some of the violations that we've seen that have been so widely documented for so long have arisen and, and why there hasn't been sufficient Pushback or severe, sufficient preventive measures put in place in order to avoid them. So, if we're going to adopt a, as I said, an unrepented human rights approach to aged care, it has to be fully embraced. We, you know, we may need to think about rebuilding it from the ground up. And other countries are, are, are grappling with this same problem. And I, I, I don't have the answers, and I'm not sure we have got the answers. Hmm. But if we realise that these are the questions we need to ask, at least we're a little bit further. Uh, along the road than just assuming that the system is more or less okay, just we need some tweaks here and some tweaks there and some more funding here. That's going to reproduce the existing system and and may alleviate some of the violations, but the underlying fundamental problems may still be there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, is the work of of pushing for a convention, is that left up to emeritus professors and and governments such as yourself and the Australian government, or are there other things that You know, ordinary Australians, care workers, family members can do as well. Yes, there are
0: many things. And there are, to use UN jargon, many stakeholders. So (laughs) everyone, all your listeners and their families and friends have an interest, partly because it affects people in our community who are older people and and. Old age is a social construction. Many people experience discrimination on the basis of older age in their forties in the labour market. The mm. largest number or the fastest growing group of homeless people in Australia are women in their mid-50s. So older age discrimination is not just confined to a small group of people at the, you know, the, the traditional pension age. Uh, it affects a, a very large and increasing number of people in our, our community. And if it's not us and, and it's going to be us, it affects our grandparents, our parents, our friends, and and so on. So everyone can be involved, and it's been encouraging to see at the United Nations and quite a few younger people appearing on behalf of non-governmental organisations to provide support for this. It's an intergenerational issue, and it is, after all, worthwhile remembering things such as the contribution of older people post-paid employment in providing voluntary labour in the community and providing childcare for their children and grandchildren, as well as vice versa, in terms of childcare as providing uh, support. So there's that, that whole dimension, the part of the glue that keeps our society together in as much as it's hanging in there uh, together. So what can you do? I think there are a number of things that, that people can do if they're interested in this. One is to think about ageism. There's a terrific organisation that you've probably had on the programme called Every Age Counts, which is a campaign campaign. Trying to raise awareness of ageism in Australia and to get us all to address it, both in our own lives uh, and in our family lives, and to call it out in the same way that we might call out sexism or, or racism or homophobia, and to think about that and, and see what we can do. The other thing that one can do is to get on the mailing lists of groups like that, but also to start. Uh, now is a good time to start asking, I guess, during an election campaign, to start asking our members of parliament and their And the candidates who are standing, whether they are prepared to support a convention on the rights of older persons, because we need to get the government, the next government, whatever it is, to make a decision to be more active at the UN. Mm. But non-governmental organizations can also get involved in appearances, making submissions to the UN, and there are different ways of of doing that if they're, they're interested. So many ways in which people can get involved. They can encourage the Australian Human Rights Commission as well to increase its advocacy for better protection of the rights of older persons. So, yes, that's just for starters. Lots that can be done and everyone can contribute. And the only way this is going to come about is if more and more people do contribute and throw their hats into this ring.
1: Mm. I'm glad that by having, having people such as yourself and Daniela and other people talking about ageism on the program, that people who are listening to this show... Can have their opinion swayed and moulded and start to see things that might be problematic and change their own behaviour. Andrew, this has been a, a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for making time today. Uh, there's plenty that people can do in their own lives to, to keep pushing for more recognition of rights for older people. If people want to find out more about your work and everything we've talked about today, are there some links that they can visit?
0: Yes, we have a, uh, a small project on the rights of older persons under international and national law, which people can reach through the Australian Human Rights Institute at UNSW. So if they just Google the Australian Human Rights Institute at UNSW, they should be able to find the older person's project.
1: Perfect. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on the program. Well, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget that each Friday we've got a fresh episode of our new show, Who Cares? in which Daniela and Maury take another look at the ideas we've been discussing in today's episode and how they might affect all of us working in the aged care industry. It's fun, thought-provoking and just a little bit silly and the good news is it's all right here in the podcast feed so you don't have to click anywhere else but if you want to make sure you don't miss out hit the subscribe button and you'll find out exactly when that episode is available. Anyway, we'll see you next week.